0: Section 19 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Four. Saxon had been clear-eyed all her days, though her field of vision had been restricted, clear-eyed from her childhood days with the saloon-keeper, Caddy, and Caddy's good-natured but unmoral spouse. She had observed, and later generalized, much upon sex. She knew the post nuptial problem of retaining a husband's love, as few wives of any class knew it, just as she knew the prenuptial problem of selecting a husband, as few girls of the working class knew it. She had of herself developed an eminently rational philosophy of love. Instinctively and consciously, too, she had made toward delicacy and shunned the perils of the habitual and commonplace. Thoroughly aware she was that as she cheapened herself, so did she cheapen love. Never in the weeks of their married life had Billy found her dowdy or harshly irritable or lethargic, and she had deliberately permeated her house with her personal atmosphere of coolness and freshness and equableness. Nor had she been ignorant of such assets as surprise and charm. Her imagination had not been asleep, and she had been born with wisdom. In Billy she had won a prize, and she knew it. She appreciated his lover's ardor, and was proud. His open-handed liberality, his desire for everything of the best, his own personal cleanliness and care of himself she recognized as far beyond the average. He was never coarse. He met delicacy with delicacy, though it was obvious to her that the initiative in all such matters lay with her, and must lie with her always. He was largely unconscious of what he did and why, but she knew in all full clarity of judgment, and he was such a prize among men. Despite her clear sight of her problem of keeping Billy a lover, and despite the considerable knowledge and experience arrayed, Before her mental vision, Mercedes Higgins had spread before her a vastly wider panorama. The old woman had verified her own conclusions, giving her new ideas, clinched old ones, and even savagely emphasized the tragic importance of the whole problem. Much Saxon remembered out of that mad preachment, much she guessed and felt, and much had been beyond her experience and understanding. But the metaphors of the veil and the flowers, and the rules of giving to abandonment, with always more to abandon, she grasped thoroughly, and she was enabled to formulate a bigger and stronger love philosophy. In the light of the revelation, she re-examined the married lives of all she had ever known, and with sharp definiteness as never before, she saw where and why so many of them had failed. With renewed ardor, Saxon devoted herself to her household, to her pretties, and to her charms. She marketed with a keener desire for the best, though never ignoring the need for economy. From the women's pages of the Sunday Supplements and from the women's magazines in the free-reading room two blocks away, she gleaned many ideas for the preservation of her looks. In a systematic way, she exercised the various parts of her body, and a certain period of time each day she employed in facial exercises and massages for the purpose of retaining the roundness and freshness, the firmness and color. Billy did not know. These intimacies of the toilet were not for him. The results only were his. She drew books from the Carnegie Library and studied physiology and hygiene, and learned a myriad of things about herself and the ways of women's health that she had never been taught by Sarah, the women of the orphan asylum, nor by Mrs. Caddy. After long debate, she subscribed to a woman's magazine. The patterns and lessons of which she decided were the best suited to her taste and purse. The other women's magazines she had access to in the free reading room, and more than one pattern of lace and embroidery she copied by means of tracing paper. Before the lingerie windows of the uptown shops, she often stood and studied. Nor was she above taking advantage, when small purchases were made, of looking over the goods at the hand-embroidered underwear counters. Once she even considered taking up with hand-painted china, but gave over the idea when she learned its expensiveness. She slowly replaced all her simple maiden underlinen garments, which, while still simple, were wrought with beautiful French embroidery, tucks, and drawn work. She crocheted fine edgings on the inexpensive knitted underwear she wore in the winter. She made little corset covers and chemises of fine but fairly inexpensive lawns, and with simple flowered designs and perfect laundering her nightgowns were always sweetly fresh and dainty. In some publication, she ran across a brief printed note to the effect that French women were just beginning to wear fascinating, beruffled caps at the breakfast table. It meant nothing to her that, in her case, she must first prepare the breakfast. Promptly appeared in the house a yard of dotted Swiss muslin, and Saxon was deep in experimenting on patterns for herself and in sorting her bits of laces for suitable trimmings. The resultant dainty creation won Mercedes Higgins' enthusiastic approval. Saxon made for herself simple house slips of pretty gingham with neat low collars turned back from her fresh round throat. She crocheted yards of laces for her underwear, and made Battenberg in abundance for her table and for the bureau. A great achievement that aroused Billy's applause was an afghan for the bed. She even ventured a rag carpet, which the women's magazines informed her had newly returned into fashion. As a matter, of course, she hemstitched the best table linen and bed linen they could afford. As the happy months went by, she was never idle nor was Billy forgotten. When the cold weather came on, she knitted him wristlets, which he always religiously wore from the house and pocketed immediately thereafter. The two sweaters she made for him, however, received a better fate, as did the slippers, which she insisted on his slipping into on evenings that they remained at home. The hard, practical wisdom of Mercedes Higgins proved of immense help. For Saxon strove with a fervor, almost religious, to have everything of the best, and at the same time to be saving. Here she faced the financial and economic problem of keeping house in a society where the cost of living rose faster than the wages of industry, and here the old woman taught her the science of marketing so thoroughly that she made a dollar of Billy's go half as far again as the wives of the neighborhoods made the dollars of their men go. Invariably, on Saturday night, Billy poured his total wages into her lap. He never asked for an accounting of what she did with it, though he continually reiterated that he had never fed so well in his life, and always the wages still untouched in her lap. She had him take out what he estimated he would need for spending money for the week to come. Not only did she bid him take plenty, but she insisted on his taking any amount extra that he might desire at any time through the week, and further, she insisted, he should not tell her what it was for. "'You've always had money in your pocket,' she reminded him, "'and there's no reason marriage should change that. "'If it did, I'd wish I'd never married you. "'Oh, I know about men when they get together.' First one treats, and then another, and it takes money. Now, if you can't treat just as freely as the rest of them, why, I know you so well, that I know you'd stay away from them, and that wouldn't be right to you, I mean. I want you to be together with men. It's good for a man.' And Billy buried her in his arms and swore she was the greatest little bit of woman that ever came down the pike. Why, he jubilated, Not only do I feel better and live more comfortable and hold up my end with the fellows, but I'm actually saving money, or you are for me. Here I am, with furniture being paid for regular every month, and a little woman I'm mad over, and on top of it, money in the bank. How much is it now?' Sixty-two dollars,' she told him. Not bad for a rainy day, but you might get sick or hurt or something happen.' It was in midwinter when Billy, with quite a deal of obvious reluctance, broached the money matter to Saxon. His old friend, Billy Murphy, was laid up with La Grip, and one of his children, playing in the street, had been seriously injured by a passing wagon. Billy Murphy, still feeble after two weeks in bed, had asked Billy for the loan of fifty dollars. "'It's perfectly safe,' Billy concluded to Saxon. I've known him since we was kids at the Durant school together. He's straight as a die. That's got nothing to do with it, Saxon chided. If you were single, you'd have lent it to him immediately, wouldn't you? Billy nodded. Then it's no difference because you're married. It's your money, Billy. Not by a damn sight, he cried. It ain't mine, it's ours. And I wouldn't think of letting anybody have it without seeing you first. "'I hope you didn't tell him that,' she said with quick concern. "'Nope,' Billy laughed. "'I knew if I did, you'd be madder than a hatter. "'I just told him I'd try to figure it out. "'After all, I was sure you'd stand for it if you had it.' "'Oh, Billy,' she murmured, her voice rich and low with love. "'Maybe you don't know it, but that's one of the sweetest things "'you've said to me since we got married.' The more Saxon saw of Mercedes Higgins, the less did she understand her. That the old woman was a close fisted miser, Saxon soon learned. And this trait she found hard to reconcile with her tales of squandering. On the other hand, Saxon was bewildered by Mercedes' extravagance in personal matters. Her underlinen, handmade, of course, was very costly. The table she set for Barry was good, But the table for herself was vastly better, yet both tables were set on the same table. While Barry contented himself with a solid round steak, Mercedes ate tenderloin. A huge tough mutton chop on Barry's plate would be balanced by tiny French chops on Mercedes' plate. Tea was brewed in separate pots, so was coffee, while Barry gulped twenty-five-cent tea from a large and heavy mug, Mercedes sipped three-dollar tea from a tiny cup of belique rose-tinted, fragile as an eggshell. In the same manner, his twenty-five-cent coffee was diluted with milk, her eighty-cent Turkish with cream. "'That's good enough for the old man,' she told Saxon. "'He knows no better, and it would be a wicked sin to waste it on him.' Little traffickings began between the two women. After Mercedes had freely taught Saxon the loose-wristed facility of playing accompaniments on the ukulele, she proposed in exchange. Her time was past, she said, for such frivolities, and she offered the instrument for the breakfast cap of which Saxon had made so good a success. "'It's worth a few dollars,' Mercedes said. "'It cost me twenty though that was years ago. Yet it is well worth the value of the cap. But wouldn't the cap be frivolous too, Saxon queried, though herself well pleased with the bargain. Tis not for my gray and hair,' Mercedes frankly disclaimed. "'I shall sell it for the money. Much that I do when the rheumatism is not maddening my fingers, I sell. La la, my dear.' "'Tis not old Barry's fifty a month, that'll satisfy all my expensive tastes. "'Tis I that makes up the difference. And old age needs money, as never youth needs it. Some day you'll learn for yourself." "'I am well satisfied with the trade,' Saxon said, and I shall make me another cap, when I can lay aside enough for the material." "'Make several,' Mercedes advised. "'I'll sell them for you, keeping, of course, a small commission for my services.' I can give you six dollars apiece for them. We will consult about them. The profit will more than provide material for your own. End of Section 19